Hello and welcome to the Damn Interesting Week podcast brought to you from damninteresting.com where we give you a very concentrated, like an espresso shot of the most interesting things out there on the internet while clearing away all the chaff of all the crap that we know is out there that we don't want to think about. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Curtis Luciani. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Okay. So I've noticed at this point that the articles we tend to gravitate toward fall into maybe like half a dozen, you know, tranches. Right. Particular categories yeah, that we each yeah. fall into. This yeah. is from the dystopian tech tranche. All right. Um, Always a good yes, one. Yes. Yes. Fear of the future. <laughs> and this is from PC Magazine. It's an article by Chandra Steele entitled The Quantified Employee, How Companies Use Tech to Track Workers. Ooh, we get tracked on everything now. Getting tracked at work just feels like the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. So I think that kind of the nut here is that a May survey found that non-traditional monitoring techniques rose from 30% of the 239 large corporations it surveyed in 2015 to 50% in 2018. That number is expected to increase to 80% in 2020. And they so, call these non-traditional, I guess the traditional methods of tracking would be like spying on you from around a corner? Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, just regular human supervision, right. punch cards, clocking in and out. Picking or, up the phone when you're uh, on the other line so they can hear what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Record, if it was like a customer service call center, I think spot listening would be considered fairly traditional. So these are all newer methods of biometric. Well, we'll get into it because Super there's, digital. there's many examples given here. So we'll get into those examples. So one of the things that the article makes note of that I think is particularly interesting and good to be aware of is that a lot of times these monitoring methods start out or they kind of come in through the back door of safety concerns. Oh, okay. So a lot of these companies know that, you know, if you were to spring some kind of employee tracking and monitoring on your workers... And it was clear from the very beginning that this is about being able to reward or punish. Right. People would not appreciate Behavior that. in a more quantitative way. People would, uh, you know, tend to raise an eyebrow to that. So a good way to kind of introduce it into the workforce is to focus on the safety angle first. Okay. And then once they've gotten comfortable with the methodology, you can kind of start to apply it to other things. A good example given here is smart cap fatigue monitoring. Oh, Now, a smart cap is a hat fitted with EEG monitoring to what? detect signs of sleepiness. So they give these to long haul truckers or other folks who work in a job where obviously being sleepy on the job Matters. Is, a, is a safety concern. Sure. So this cap will track and alert incidents of micro sleeping, <laughs> you know, whoever's wearing it. So, you know, if the head kind of dips down yeah, for a second. Bob off and we, then... we, we've all we've all been there. It will track and record that. Now, again, this is purportedly first and foremost a safety concern, but you can see that once the well, so they've got an has EEG this... on your head yeah. 24 hours a day, that seems a little invasive. Yeah, and, and I feel like with a lot of these technologies for managing large workforces and maximizing their efficiency, you can kind of look to what China is doing as a precursor to where we're where, headed, where our uh, <laughs> our overlords might want us to go. Mm -hmm. So in China, they do these same EEG smart caps, but they're not just looking for micro sleep 
events. They're looking for activity that indicates emotional spikes, like depression, super angry, anxiety, rage. So they're using it to monitor the emotional state of their employees and. What do they do with that? Oh, I don't know. What do you think they might do with yeah, that? Yeah, how do you judge somebody? You're like, oh, you did a great job today, but you're also super pissed off. You could take that and be like, great, we need to make him angry right. to make him a harder worker. Yeah, not to leap immediately to the most extreme example, although I think you, of course, have to consider it. But it does make me think about those stories that came out, I guess it was about a decade ago, about Foxconn factories. Where, oh, the employees jumping off the building. Yeah, where they had to put the suicide nets outside the factories, you know, to try and get... <laughs> so it's like... Is this a way to measure just like how far you can push your employees before? Well, you want to save money on the net. We're spiking everyone's blind, you know, rage sectors of their brain. Maybe we should back off a little bit, you know, just seeing how far you can surf towards. Sure. And you've historically, you've always had bosses fire you if you were underperforming. The hope, of course, is that your boss as a human being would understand, oh, John's wife just died last week, so it's understandable that he's had a little bit of a dip and we expect that he'll be back up to full capacity later. There's an empathy for specific situations that the algorithm isn't going to have. Yeah, and I I, I think there's just in a kind of spiritual sense, if we can step outside the the brute (laughs) logic of economics. You know, maybe human beings with, uh, you know, so to speak, uh, souls, <laughs> you know, sh- <laughs> maybe shouldn't just literally be treated as machines mm-hmm. in the working process. I think there's an argument to be made as well that, like a lot of these things, it doesn't work as well as you think it does. Like when you're teaching a toddler morality, you don't want them to do the right thing only because they're being watched. You want them to do the right thing because it's the right thing. And if you teach a child, I'm watching you 24 hours a day and there's going to be punishment, it makes them behave, but it gives them the wrong ethical underpinning for behaving. And I think there's probably something like that to this as well, where if your employee is only doing a good job because they know they're being watched 24 hours a day, they're not going to be as effective an employee as they could be if they truly care about their job. Right, right. But I mean, to kind of accept that idea that the worker should be kind of self-driven and self-empowered, you know, you might have to figure out different ways for people to work other than these conditions in these environments where you're just looking for human robots, right? I mean, like you're looking for a human automaton that can reliably deliver the same performance. And you're using these elements of tracking and biometrics to understand how that human machine works as, as closely as you can. Now, again, of course, a lot of these companies that do this tracking, they're quick to clarify that, oh, we don't tie the data to individual employees. We're trying to deliver large sets of anonymized data. Right. The to, people in this factory management. generally are lazier than the people in the yeah, other factory. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. So, I mean, you can see like how quickly that falls apart. But I mean, another thing that is uh, scary about this is more and more people are comfortable with the idea of being tracked at work. It says Sure, some, it's, it feels inevitable. It talks in the article about Quote, at Deloitte and Bank of America, workers have worn humanize badges, humanize with a Y. That's the name of this outfit. The badges analyze a wearer's speech through volume and pitch, note who they spend time with, and map the paths of their days. So these are, you know, white collar office workers who uh, are being tracked by their badges, the same badges they use to, you know, swipe in at the beginning of the day. And listening to what they actually say. Yeah. Again, now Humanize is one of these companies that say, oh, actually, uh, we're not 
listening to individual conversations and saying Bob was talking about this. No, mm-hmm. we're taking the big data set and we're we're anonymizing it, right. and we're just trying to produce big data insights. We just want right? to know how many times the word unionize yeah. was said on a particular yeah, day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, they do reassure employees that they don't listen to them in the bathroom. So, uh, <laughs> Who would want to? I think people instinctively are like, oh, no, what if they hear me in the bathroom? Like, nobody wants that information. It's the stuff that you don't think about that yeah. they want to know. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, like, you know, probably there's a lot of milk toast crap that comes out of that. But I mean, at the end of the day, you know, for many, many, many decades, like the last <laughs> refuge of like the working person is the, to hide in the bathroom. Just, go hide in the bathroom. They try to be a little proactive and like tie in with their health insurance policy. So it's like you spend too long in the bathroom and you start getting free prescriptions for IBS medications. Yeah. And like... yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. The uh, your swipe card at the cafeteria suddenly only works on high fiber items. <laughs> right. You know. Um, That's where we're headed. So much other stuff in the article. You know, implanted microchips, all kinds of stuff. At Three Square Market, a Wisconsin-based vending machine supplier, over 80 employees had RFID microchips inserted in their hands voluntarily. In their skin? Yeah. Oh, wow. Like, you know, like a little subcutane. And, you know, it's like, oh, it's great. You know, I can swipe into work. I can sign into my computer. I can pay for food. Um, But but, uh, we'll see. We'll see how it plays out. In the meantime... If they want to put a microchip in you, I I do want to say this strongly. Maybe maybe say no. Right. Just <laughs> like, consider maybe. Like, like people are trying to push against it. They're failing. You know. <laughs> it's 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 tough. I mean, the the legal landscape right now, after decades and decades of business friendly legislation, the odds are stacked against workers yeah. right now in most states. I think the solution is to start spamming the system with bad data. If they're listening to everything you say, you can't speak in a foreign language because they know all the foreign languages. But I think we need to start using Pig Latin so they don't know what you're saying. We need to start a renaissance of new languages here. That's right. And just, you know, walk backward through the office. Ooh, that'll throw them uh, off. Yeah. Or just kind of side shuffle. <laughs> crab walk. Uh, crab walk. <laughs> you know, th- do what you can to monkey wrench the thing because... Creeps me out, man. Creeps me out. Everyone stay strong out there. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. Well, this is uh, a little bit personal for you and I. You are a writer performer. Your wife is a writer. I am a writer. What is your stance on fan fiction? (laughs) I mean, I'm pro, you know, it mostly is people having fun. Mm -hmm. And I, I kind of we don't have to go all the way down this conversation. <laughs> but for me, the thing that bothers me is when fan fiction has just kind of become mainstream entertainment. Mm-hmm. I mean, what are the new Star Wars movies? But just like they're Star Wars fan fiction. They're somebody's fan fiction. Right. Yeah. Like, like I, I think let's just make sure that we continue to generate sufficient primary source material going forward. That's right. Let's not the, just get into this sounding chamber. Of... For the fan fiction of tomorrow to be uh, based upon. But but when it comes to, you know, like people, you know, I mean, I love the fact that people just learn to express themselves and, and they may go on to create other things. That's right. Well, and that actually has uh, some basis in reality. There are some novelists 
who got their start in fan fiction, and they freely admit this, you know, they don't consider it a shameful thing. They say, no, this is a great uh, testing ground to sort of get your chops, figure out how to write Mm -hmm. stuff that's good. And uh, one of those authors is Naomi Novik, who has books out now, I suppose. In 2019, her fanfic site, this archive site of fan fiction called Archive of Our Own, won an award, a Hugo Award, for the best related work, which I think might be a Ah, newish category. So that sparked a a bit of a more mainstream awareness of what was possibly kind of an underground thing to begin with. But this article from The Atlantic by Shannon Chamberlain is called Fan Fiction Was Just As Sexual in the 1700s As It Is Today. Oh, yeah. Because, of course, a lot of fan fiction is slash fiction. Of course. Uh, A delightful subgenre that seems to be really the bulk of it. That's the majority of fan fiction out there is a little sure. more graphic and titillating than the original story. Yeah, I mean, were. I think it's totally natural that if you ask people, you love this movie, you love this book, what was the one thing that was missing? In most cases, the thing that's missing is that uh, no one bones. That's right. A graphic you know? sex scene between the two main yeah, characters. Yeah, I mean, no one bones. And that's what we, that's kind of what we want. Yeah, it's, it's you know? deep down. Uh, deep well, down. and apparently it's what we've wanted since at least the 1700s. At least in the Western version of things, they have found examples of, for example, engraver William Hogarth, who had a substantial career engraving Mm -hmm. pictures from famous works of art. One of his very well-known works depicts Lemuel Gulliver from Gulliver's Travels receiving an enema from the Lilliputians. And the author of this article said this was very in character for Gulliver. It absolutely played upon his fascination with the tininess of the Lilliputians. She said, you know, this is completely legitimate fan fiction. All right. Hot. Hot. That's right. Well, that was they said almost always, even back then, fan fiction was racier than yeah. the original work. I, I don't recall any sex in Gulliver's Travels, but it's been a while since I've I, read it. Yeah, I don't think there is any. No, probably uh, not. And no, and no enemas. Yes. No sexy enemas. No. Uh, and there's a poet named Alexander Pope, who if you yep. know poetry, he's a famous guy. Big guy. Yeah. <laughs> he wrote a series of poems about Gulliver's Travels as well. He wrote them from the perspective of Gulliver's sexually frustrated wife who was left back home uh, during his travels. She's only barely alluded to in the book, but his focus is, you know, what is what is her life like? Not being able to get any while her <laughs> husband's out getting enemas from yeah, little people. Talking to horses. Right. Another example, novelist Henry Fielding. He mm-hmm. wrote a fanfic yeah. of the famous novel Pamela, which he called Shamala. Right. And it was incredibly successful. It sold many, many copies and ultimately sort of helped launch his career as a real novelist. Yeah, I mean, so this is, okay, you know, Shakespeare used source material sure. that he grabbed from all over the place. And is that is that a type of fan fiction? I mean, the line between adaptation, parody, fan fiction, you know, gets a little fuzzy. It does. Know? Well, and some authors are less cool with it than uh, Miss Novick. Famously, uh, a couple of years ago, J.K. Rowling sued somebody who was publishing Harry Potter fanfic. I think in that case, they were trying to make money off of it. Right. And that sort of is the line for a lot of authors. It's like, yeah, go play in the sandbox, have fun. But if you're making money off my characters, that's not cool. Yeah. Uh, which, of course, Henry Fielding was definitely making money off of Shyamalan. Yeah. So that, it just depends. I recall hearing that uh, either Amazon or some other giant company was working on some kind of method by which authors could write authorized fan fiction, essentially approved fan fiction, and there would be, you know, 
some percentage of revenue that would go to the actual creator or, or rights holder and, and, and you would still be able to like sell that fan fiction. Right, it's a licensing and, agreement, basically. Yeah. It's, it's a, like it's, when somebody it, does a cover of a famous song. But it's like a very like, it was supposed to be a very lightweight licensing agreement mm-hmm. where you could essentially just kind of opt in and, and it would all be taken care of and be really, you know, seamless for you. Right, I'm they'll sure, handle the money. You know, I'm sure in practice, it's probably not a viable way to make tons and tons of money, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe some people do make a lot of money doing that. Or I just imagined this whole thing. <laughs> right, maybe you made the whole thing. Up. You got a business model on your hands if you did. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, and they they noted in the article that they think one of the big reasons for the spike in romance-based fanfic yeah. in, in particular was the sort of changing understanding of marriage in the 18th century from a business transaction to actual love-based marriages. You know, prior to that, it was all, we're going to consolidate power and combine these farms so that we can all survive and not starve. And it was only as marriage became sort of love-based that they're like, oh, let's also take these famous works that are pretty straightforward as well and add the element of love into them. That, at the very least, was sort of the beginning of fanfic being <laughs> as uh, uh, romance-based. So the origins of slash fiction lay in a time centuries ago when people were like, yeah, what if people liked each other yeah, before they got married? Ugh, I don't know. <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be weird. <laughs> it would be strange. It'd be weird, but but let's let's kind of test drive this let's idea try, by let's... using beloved characters. See what that, that would feel know. like. See if it'll work out. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Well, and a lot of the early uh, fan fiction specifically made it not working out. Right, that was so, right. It was sort of a pushback of like, oh, you think it would go so well if these characters loved each other? Let me just play that scene out for you. <laughs> and it was, you know, very... <laughs> I don't know enough about contemporary fan fiction, but that's got to be like a subgenre of like slash fiction is like bad sex slash fiction where, you're, right. where where someone's like, I totally do not ship these characters and I'm going to show you that if they had sex, it would be a disaster. Be no awkward. one would get off. Everyone would be angry and uncomfortable. <laughs> Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, counter, counter slash fiction. That's right. If somebody knows the name of that genre, please uh, don't let me know. I don't want to know about it. <laughs> All right, next link. Next, next link. link. Okay, this is from Vox by David Roberts, and this is entitled The Radical Moral Implications of Luck in Human Life. Are there moral implications? Yeah. I assume there must be. Yeah, I mean, this is um, a very breezy synthesis of a basic sort of philosophical, sociological, psychological, I don't know exactly how you'd categorize it, problem, mm-hmm. which is how do we account for luck as a factor in why people are successful in the world? So the idea is not just, is there such thing as luck, but we assume there is, what can we do to counteract it and make a level playing field? Is that where they're going with this? Well, that's where it ultimately gets to. But I think he is basically trying to sketch out the problem in a simplified way here, as is very much in keeping with Vox right. uh, articles. It's an explainer, you know, <laughs> five minutes <laughs> point of view. But essentially what he gets down to is that, of course, it remains a very, very fraught subject philosophically. Sure, it's hard to quantify. In America particularly, where there has been well over a century of ideology that has encouraged us to look at successful people, understand that their success is a product of hard work. Sure, they're self-made. Now, he's trying to get down to the basic point here, which is Obviously, we all acknowledge that people are born under different circumstances. Sure. So people start out in very different places. At least in some fundamental way, we all acknowledge that you're not responsible 
responsible for how your attitudes are shaped since we say that only at 18 do you become fully accountable for your actions. Right. And there's a there's a counter narrative that says the question is, what do you do with that? Do you take this negative environment that you're put in and do you rise above it or do you continue the cycle? Right. So Robert's continuing this string of compelling simplifications. Mm -hmm. You know, basically, he breaks down in this article that we have essentially two modes of thinking as, as human beings. We have this sort of hot mode of thinking, which is instinctual, automatic, largely unconscious. And then we have the cool mode of thinking, right? Which is slower, more deliberative, you know. Right, more, rational versus gut instinct. More, more driven by our understanding, imperfect as it may be, of what free will constitutes, right? right? As, as Roberts points out, the capacity and the need for cool thinking, he also calls it system two thinking, system one and two, uh, are inequitably distributed. So everyone loves talking about the marshmallow test. Oh, right? I love right? the marshmallow ever, test. Ever since that the marshmallow test, I don't know a single parent who's not kind of like low-key obsessed, even if they would never, ever actually give their kid the marshmallow test. Right. They're looking for that you're, feature of delayed gratification. You're, yeah. You're looking for your kid to start displaying those signs of mm -hmm. like, you know, fundamental self-control. And, and, and I know with my toddler, I don't make a big point of it. I don't make a big fuss of it. But I know that I'm like constantly looking, like looking for like any sign that he's able to delay gratification for a moment. And I notice, you know, when we watch contemporary episodes of Sesame Street, it's obviously like a huge focus because they're always on Sesame Street these days talking about taking a breath, right. you know, count it. Like there's all this stuff about being able to control yourself. Yeah, there's a whole curriculum based around it. My kid's school does this thing that was originally by Goldie Hawn of all people called Mind Up. Uh -huh. And they have a whole curriculum in the school of like meditative breaks and let's talk emotionally. It's almost like they have little itty bitty group therapy sessions throughout the school day. It's a very fascinating curriculum. Right, right. And I mean, I think it's great because I do think mindfulness is, is a great thing. Sure. Um, and it seems like a great idea to start kids out early with it. But of course, whose kids are getting trained in mindfulness you know it's people whose kids go to good schools right it, generally. you're already talking about a strata that started before they were born that gets them into the position where they can learn about this stuff uh -huh. and i have to say i do think there is definitely something to the idea that some of your cool thinking ability is ingrained at birth because i know in my heart that as a three-year-old if somebody had administered that test to me i would have said now, hang on a second Five minutes gets me two marshmallows. How about I just go home and come back tomorrow and you give me the whole bag? Like I was a calculating, very long-term thinker. And I have always have been to the point that I say, I don't think I chose to be that way. I'm just a, a robot inside. And that's how I've always been. I, I can confirm that, you know, all of us here on the podcast, we live under the terror of Jennifer's <laughs> Machiavellian uh, I rule with an iron fist. Yeah, outcome maximization. <laughs> So yeah, of course, these are not new or revolutionary concepts. Well, but, it's an explainer. But there are th there are yeah, but there are things that even though we know them, it, people really, really, really have a hard time admitting them. Like yeah, maybe some people who are really successful are just lucky. Yeah, or like just... are really not extraordinary at all. Mm -hmm. Maybe just go nuts and let yourself just imagine. Like what if? <laughs> what if? It is all pretty much as random as it seems, you know? 
What would the moral implications of that be? I leave that to you, listener. That's an exercise. Consider. (laughs) Consider. If it really is all just luck. Then Then our self-esteems are going down the toilet because it means nothing we've accomplished is something we've really accomplished. Yeah. Well, I mean... (laughs) I mean, that's that's what I, I, that's tough. I that's mean, that's tough to reckon with. Obviously, that's really, really tough to reckon with. But um, we could just all agree to accept that, that yeah, the world's a big casino and uh, <laughs> it's a giant game of roulette. You know, we if, if things are bad, you should just hit the bar and uh, <laughs> the alternatives are very big to imagine. Right. But I don't know. Imagine it. That's right. What are you Give doing? It a you're, shot. you're listening to a podcast. Take a second to imagine. Pause. Think about it a little bit, then come back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> come back, and we'll have a whole bag of marshmallows waiting for you. All right, are you back? All right. Next link. Next, next link. link. So this article is a little bit depressing. It's called Yay. <laughs> "The Fraught Future of Recycling." It's from Axios. Oh God. So uh, obviously, you know, we all have this idea. We know we're supposed to recycle. Recycling is good. We've, we're on a multi-decade course. course at this point to say, yes, we all should be doing this. It's the right thing to do. And there have been some studies that show that maybe it's not as helpful as we think it is. It just sort of makes us feel good and doesn't really help the planet. But aside from that, turns out the industry of recycling is really, really, really struggling right now. And people are not right. necessarily really aware of it. In America, most of what we do at recycling plants is just sorting. We sort the glass from the aluminum from the whatever, and then those unified bags of stuff get shipped off mostly to China for the actual recycling process where they melt it down and refashion it into something else. And that was only true up until January of 2018, because at that point, China passed the National Sword Policy which banned the import of most plastics and other materials basically due to their overwhelmed system. They said, we're getting too much. We can't process it fast enough. We're having ecological problems of our own. We're done. Right. And they just slammed the door on it. And China was at that point 70% of our market for getting rid of this stuff. Right. Maybe the article gets into this, but wasn't it always kind of the case that the the idea of plastic recycling was kind of... Iffy In some ways, with. a public relations kind of mm-hmm. coup by the plastics industry to be like, oh, we can recycle this stuff. So and it's okay. Actually, it's really hard to mm-hmm. recycle plastic. And a lot of it that goes into recycling just ends up in a landfill. Somewhere. Right. Yeah. Well, and that was what they said is basically glass in particular, for some reason, a lot of counties have stopped taking glass. Oh, really? And I'm not sure whether that's just because we don't have the infrastructure to do it or whether there's actually some facet of it that's harder. But they note that, for example, Baltimore County just admitted that while they, quote, take glass, they haven't actually recycled any of it for seven years. So, of course, they have a little bit of a black eye with that. People are upset. (sighs) But they basically said, look, even if we say we don't take glass, people put it in there anyway. They said that part of the problem that makes it so difficult to afford in America is that the sorting itself is still a very, very human-based activity. You really can't get machines to do it because it just is a detailed kind of job. They said Prince William County takes in 550 tons of recyclable materials per day. They have a rotating staff of 28 sorters per shift operating 22 hours a day, and they still can't keep up. You know, people put all sorts of stuff in there. They say they find Christmas trees, carpet, shoes, diapers, and even cinder blocks. Oy. Which I don't. Who puts a cinder block in their recycling? Who puts but, a diaper? Yeah, but <laughs> but apparently people do, and they said that's the problem: is you can't teach a computer to look for 
all of the myriad things that people might accidentally put in their recycling. Right. And so you just have to have humans sorting it, and that becomes a very, very costly thing. In addition, as some of these facilities close, they have to be trucked farther and farther to further away facilities, at which point the pollution generated by the truck completely outweighs any benefit you get from the recycling. And so this article is actually, it's pretty dire. It's talking about how like we may be just done with recycling in a few more decades, that it's just not feasible. It's not worth the benefit. Which, you know, is depressing in its own right, because yeah, what are we going to do? Definitely depressing. Uh, well, I mean, I, I think the thing people are slowly coming to realize is that, no, we, I mean, we do have to just reduce. You know, I, I, I certainly, I worry always when conversations about this come up, because, I mean, I don't want anyone to feel discouraged from recycling, but we do have to collectively look at, like, how effective is it really right. like what materials can we really reuse efficiently and what stuff do we just need to reduce right. the Stop amount using. that we are producing mm-hmm. at the source please just do look at the rules and sort your recycling yeah i mean do if no other reason they're telling you to do don't make the poor sorters loud. sort through your dirty diapers that's just mean there's that, a real person at the end of that conveyor belt yeah it's not that hard to go to the website look it up there's phone numbers you can call if you <laughs> if you're not sure you know, whether a cinder block can like, be recycled. Like how much do I have to clean this can before I put it in the bin? Right. You know, just get your questions answered and do it right, but also advocate for change because uh, <laughs> both of those things do both of them at the same time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. Okay. So uh, looking to the future and how the human project will remain sustainable <laughs> or in terms not. of resources. Yeah. <laughs> This is from Wired, and this is an article by Daniel Oberhaus. Article's titled, Want Unlimited Clean Energy? Just Drill the World's Hottest Well. Oh, okay. Okay. If it's that easy, then why didn't they say so? Okay, so this is all about the prospect of using the heat of the Earth's core as a power source. Okay. Okay. So in a very few places on the Earth currently, there are wells drill where people are drilling for supercritical geothermal fluids. And this article specifically talks about one in Tuscany's Apennine Mountains. So so in Italy, not not the first place you'd look for a well uh, to the center of the know, earth. Edgy, yeah, edgy <laughs> um energy solutions. The the idea here of course is that the farther you drill down into the earth, hotter it gets. Yeah, we got tons and tons of energy down hotter, there. Yeah, it's just a, it's just a huge ball of roiling flame and, <laughs> and lava. Lava, right? So if we could tap into that, that could be a source of clean energy if you were able to use the heat generated by the Earth's core to power turbines. So it's not that we're bringing the lava up. It's that somehow we put like a highly conductive rod down into it and like suck the heat up. Essentially, yeah. Okay. Like, And another way of doing that is that you would get down to where you reach rock mm-hmm. that is... Like the iron core. It's, it's like so hot. Mm-hmm. You essentially blast the rock with liquids... Okay. Such that the energy is then kind of conducted up. As, oh, you the know, pressure! It turns it's like a pressure. steam engine. It yeah. turns it into. It's essentially pressure. a steam engine. Okay. So, so, so that would be a way of doing it where you don't even have to get into you know the the actual source of the heat. As long as you're close enough, mm-hmm. you could leverage the heat in order to generate a lot of energy. Now. What is one of the main concerns holding this back? I assume uh, right now? there have to be some. Otherwise, we yeah. would have done it. If you drilled too much in the wrong place, you might literally shake the earth to bits. Whoops. 
All? Right, right. I mean, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure there are already at least a couple movies about like drilling down to like the Earth's core and uh, it's the, just like cracking the planet. The in wacky, half. yeah, the wacky <laughs> situations that can happen if you start going burrowing down in there. No earthquakes thus far have been linked to the process of drilling for supercritical fluids. But geothermal wells, like you know, a sort of related, have caused major earthquakes in the past. Last year, South Korea experienced its second largest earthquake, I'm quoting right now, in history and traced its origin to an experimental geothermal well. Ooh. So one of the things that's tricky about this is, of course, it's very hard to do this kind of drilling. You do it wrong, it's all just going to melt anyway or right. like blow to bits or something like that. Mm-hmm. So you have to you have to pick your shots pretty precisely and it's easier to do if you utilize existing fault lines. Oh, like pick a fault that already exists and get yeah. down in there. Yeah. But doesn't so but does that make the earthquakes more likely or less likely? If you're doing it on the fault line. I, I don't quite know. I don't think they entirely understand that. I mean, so so that's... Might you, as well give it a shot and yeah. see what happens then. I mean, that's a problem, right? Yeah, if, they if, don't if, know. If it's like, well, we got to keep trying this and eventually we'll figure out, you know, what causes the, <laughs> the really bad earthquakes and what causes, you know, medium earthquakes. But you're going to um, make a lava omelet. You got to break a few lava eggs. <laughs> but of course, it is something people are exploring because as it uh, states here, if you drill deep enough, enhanced geothermal systems could theoretically be used almost anywhere, right? Sure, you like could, if, if they you do how to out, do it right. If they figured out a way to do it right, you could just drill down to where it's good and hot and then uh, use that heat to, as a clean source of energy. But... <laughs> Yeah, but there's a big hurdle in that butt of like, how do we really make it safe? As uh, Jeffrey Bailicki, the leader of the Energy Sustainability Research Lab at Ohio State University says, geothermal suffers from a bit of a marketing problem. A little bit. Yeah. (laughs) A bit of of the idea of drilling holes deep into the earth that could potentially cause major earthquakes. And destabilize tectonic plates is spooky to people. Sure. Um, I think there's been so many movies as well about like when you drill into the core of the earth and you find something you weren't expecting. You know, there's a civilization down there. It turns out there's a, right. uh, you know, that's been such a right place for science fiction to dig, yeah. so to speak, of what's in there. Because we sort of know, but we also kind of don't know. Yeah. Also, hell's down there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You don't want to drill, drill de- down to the hell. The devil lives down there with all the bad people. How sad is that that I didn't even occur to me? I was like, oh. <laughs> the things they're in the planet, you know, aliens. Oh, no, hell. The original visionary futurism. Uh, <laughs> now you're making me think of fanfic with the devil. It's terrible. Stop. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> He's a sexy guy. That's right. Devil, devil's where all the sex Part comes. of his attraction. So, look, I, this sounds terrifying to me. I guess I'm glad we have it in our back pocket if things get so bad that we we feel like we're literally choosing between the atmosphere becoming Venus-like or- you A know, few earthquakes. Or- Whole cities crumbling to dust because of our geothermal wells. And, you know, nuclear power itself is also very scary, and we've found ways to make that mostly safe. So, you know, maybe maybe there's hope. Maybe it just takes a little bit of careful research to figure out how to do this right. Right, right, yeah. And if we could, that would be a huge boon to humanity to have a perpetual clean energy. Although that would in itself destabilize a lot of economic systems of, like, who's got the power? Well, if everyone has the power then it, it, a lot of our current structures are going to be a little unstable for a while. Right, right. I mean, it could either lead to the sort of uh, Star Trek, no one uses any money anymore, oh. utopia of many people's dreams, yeah. or, or into like some 
nightmare where where other forms of commodified value have to be created right. in order to uh, compensate for the loss of energy as being an economic you know, source. A source a source of all value it it does seem like the kind of thing where it's like it could be going well for a while and then it just maybe there's like a critical mass that we that's don't that's right the bottom falls out of the market understand uh-huh. and then and then suddenly like we have a new like pangea type event <laughs> All uh, the continents just yeah, slide. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's... Well, I think if history's taught us anything, we're going for it, whether or not it's a good idea. That's true. Whether... We're, we're doing everything that we can think of. Yeah. It I just takes wh- a question of how long. What are we going to do? Use less energy? Nah. nah not likely. That's guys. like using less plastic. It's not going to happen. So no. just, you know, <laughs> oy, oy, oy. cross your fingers and go boldly into this new drilling horizon. All right. And on that happy note, that is all we have time for today. Some of the articles that we did not get to today why DNA tests are suddenly unpopular, preparing for the end of the world on a budget, and what's the world's worst smell? Apparently it's been quantified. It's in this article. I didn't read that one. I don't know. You're going to have to go check it out. As always, if you would like to support our podcast and keep us on the air, you can go to patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. Often the uh, cliche that people use is buy us a cup of coffee. This week, we would also like you to buy our co-host, Angela Epley, some cold medication. She is having a little bit of an illness, and we wish her the best in recovering as quickly as possible so she can get back in here and uh, talk about the destruction of the earth with such (laughs) joy. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Curtis Luciani. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.